Good morning. Uh, welcome again to Seven Mile Road Church. Whether, you're, whether you've been with us for the whole ride of the Unbelievable series or whether this is just your first time here, we do want you to know that these objections and these questions we've been answering might just seem like a pure intellectual exercise or just something that we like to talk about. But we want you to know that the goal of doing this is that Christians would be encouraged and equipped in their faith and that non-Christians would hear that their questions and their objections can be answered. So if you're new to this series, we've discussed issues and objections like the trustworthiness of the Bible, the problem of evil and suffering, hypocrisy in the church, intolerance, and many more. I encourage you to listen to those. You can find them online at our website. One more thing, if at any time during the sermon you have a question, you can text it in to this number behind me on the screen, and we'll try to answer it at some point during this week on the church blog. So, as we look at the seventh sermon of our series, we'll be talking about this question. Hasn't science disproved Christianity? In other words, don't we have to throw out our brains in order to save our souls? Or, don't I have to give up on my soul if I want to have a brain? Now, we just heard Bennu read Genesis 1, but non-Christians and Christians alike still struggle to make sense of it in a world where science seems to have all the answers. As we live in the 21st century, where medicine can cure almost any sickness, where engineering has been able to send people to space, and where communication is now instantaneous over the internet and smartphones, it's difficult to see how a story like Genesis 1 is relevant to us today, much less even true. So you may be here, and you might be a Christian who works in the medical field, and day in and day out you see illness, disease, deformities that you have to deal with. It might make you wonder whether God created those or whether they're just there because of some chance. You might be someone who works in the field of engineering, where each day you have to assume scientific laws and regularities in order to do your work. And it might make you wonder, where does God fit into all of this? Do we even need him? Is he there at all? But you may be an atheist who's here, and you might think that science is the end-all, be-all, man's greatest success. You probably think that God has no role in science, and perhaps even the idea of God is unnecessary, irrational, even to the point of causing harm in the world. But you may be an agnostic who doesn't know if there's a God and if it's even possible for us to know if there's a God. For you, it might be simple enough to say that I have my laboratory and the scientific method, but Christians can have their Bible and the church. So, from these different positions, whether they're Christian or not, the tension seemingly remains between science and Christianity. And it's rooted in this question. Hasn't science disproved Christianity? This question is the foundation for many objections to the faith. They take different forms and they pertain to topics like evolution, the age of the earth, the possibility of the miraculous. But as Christians, we believe the world was created from nothing. A bush was on fire, but it didn't burn up. The sun stopped in the sky. Water turned to wine. And a dead man rose from the grave. So if you're not a Christian and you're here, you're probably asking yourself, how can they believe that in 2014? But I would guess to say if you're a Christian and you're here, you're probably asking yourself, how can I believe that in 2014? 
So as we go along, we'll address these objections. But first, it's helpful to outline what Christians actually believe about science. What does the Bible have to tell us about it? If we understand what Christianity teaches, it'll help us understand the tension behind it, and it'll give us a way to solve these problems. Now, I do confess before we start, it's hard to believe in the 21st century. From all angles, everyone and everything is telling us that our faith is worthless and that it's all for nothing. After all, science has progressed so much in just the last 100 years. So why don't we give up and give in on this talk of a creator or a God who controls all things? Hasn't science disproven miracles? Isn't God useless since science can explain so much? Science indeed has given us much. So why don't we Christians admit to the fact that when Christianity ruled the world, the time period was called the Dark Ages. So what we'll address today is the question we said earlier, hasn't science disproven Christianity? We can't put aside our faith in the Bible because it's the foundation of our belief. We can't pretend to look at the evidence for intelligent design or evolution or anything else scientific with some neutral idea, hoping to prove beyond any reasonable doubt the existence of God. Pastor Jay in the first sermon of this series showed us that we can't do that anyway. Before we even begin to examine evidence, we all have our own Bible, our own set of beliefs that help us inform the way that we see the evidence. So as Christians, we're going to hold firm to the Bible, and we're going to give answers to these objections from the Bible. And we'll do this in three ways this morning. First, we need to see how we should read the Bible, how we should make sense of it. Second, we'll briefly look at the scientific objections to Christianity. But third and finally, we'll see how Jesus is our redeemer, and by implication, is the redeemer of science. So again, just a brief outline. We'll look at how to read the Bible, we'll talk about the objections, and then we'll see, ultimately, that Jesus is our redeemer. Now, as we begin to look at the Bible and think about how we should read it, we notice today that an extreme exists in Christianity. Many Christians tremble at the thought of science. It terrifies them. We fear that somehow, by investigating God's creation, we'll discover some fact or some new theory that will disprove or at the very least discredit our faith. These Christians are often very faithful in many areas of life, and their faith is a model for how to live through joy and suffering. But they still fear science because it could show them that their faith was all wrong or all for nothing. Anything intellectual or scientific is seen as the root of evil and the root of sin. And it's supported by saying something like this, I have faith like a child. But the root of this extreme is a misunderstanding of faith. Faith isn't a blind leap. That's childish. It's childish because children, as many of you do know at Seven Mile Road Church, will believe almost anything, even when it's been proven false and when they know it's wrong. Or... A child will insist on his or her own way simply because it's his or her own way. I'll give you an example to help illustrate it. My wife has always loved dogs. To this day, she loves dogs. She grew up with dogs, has always been around them. Even now, when she sees something that has four legs and a tail, she has to go pet it. But her parents like to tell this story of when she was about seven years old. She would beg and plead with them to go to a pawn shop. It's a weird place for a seven-year-old to want to visit. But every time they would drive by it, she would beg and plead with them to go in. 
her parents would tell her that there was nothing in there for her, nothing in there at all that a seven-year-old would be interested in. But as a seven-year-old, she had to have her own way. She was determined that she wanted to go in. So finally, because they were good parents, they took her in one day when she was begging with them. But when she walked in, she was totally, totally disappointed. Much to her dismay, the pawn shop isn't the same thing as the dog pound. You can imagine the look on a seven-year-old's face when she walks in and she sees just jewelry and guitars on the wall and there's no dogs for her to play with. So much the same way, this is an example of childish faith. But faith isn't like that. It's not childish, but it is childlike. It's trust in Jesus. Childlike faith trusts a parent because the child knows that the whole world revolves around that parent that everything they have comes from mom and dad, whether it's protection, food, or even something as simple as the love. Each of us here are here today because at some point, we trusted what our parents were doing for us, what they were telling us. In much the same way, the Christian's faith in Christ is trust, just like trusting in a parent, that all we have and all we've been given is from God by an act of his love. So instead of reading the Bible with childlike faith, Many Christians choose to read the Bible with childish faith. Those who read it this way are reading the Bible improperly. They're wanting it to be something that it's really not. You might be familiar with how this manifested itself in last month's debate between Ken Ham, the founder of the Answers in Genesis Foundation, and everyone's favorite scientist, Bill Nye. Ham, who is a Christian, argues for six literal, literal 24-hour days of creation in a young earth. And this is a perfectly acceptable position for a Christian to hold. Ham himself has even done some scientific work to support his position. However, Ham believes that this is the only true position scientifically and that it's the only true position in Christianity. But his reading and interpretation of Genesis 1, which we've just read together, elevates it to a place of central importance, making it the only one that Christians should accept. But his view is just one of many. And when we elevate any reading of Genesis 1 to a place of central importance, we lose the true purpose of the passage. To do something like that is childish because we're several, possibly even ten different acceptable interpretations exist. Just picking out one and making it the standard for faith takes away from the true purpose of the passage. If we keep in mind that the Bible isn't a science textbook trying to tell us each and every last detail about creation, we see that the how question of Genesis 1 isn't nearly as important as the why question of Genesis 1. So how then should we read Genesis 1? Should we read it literally? Should we take it as a myth? Let's say we figure out how to read it. What should we do with it then? Does it have any bearing on our life in 2014? Now, we live almost 2,000 years after Jesus walked on the earth. So as Christians, we believe what the Bible says is God's word. But the common misunderstanding of reading the Bible says this. To read the Bible properly is to read the Bible absolutely literally. But the big question here is what do we mean by literally? If we mean by that, that the Bible's God's word, and that every word in it is in fact true, then yes, Christians do read the Bible literally. Again, don't hear me wrong. We read the Bible literally because we believe that it is God's word and that every word in it is true. 
However, if what we mean by literally is that Christians believe the Bible gives us knowledge like a science textbook or something like a cookbook, then we've missed the point. This misconception says that Christians read the Bible and we just get a list of ingredients, and if we mix it together in our own little pots, then we'll somehow come up with a good life. But this isn't the way the Bible reads. It forces a false reading on the Bible that just simply isn't there. Perhaps an example will help. Think about this example from the book of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 10, verse 2 says, A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Now, is this verse saying that we can tell who's wise and who's foolish based on who wants to go this way and who wants to go this way? A literal reading of this verse says, if we watch and we just watch what people do, how they act, whether they like to go to the right side of the street or the left side of the street, then we can know whether they're wise or foolish. If we were to read this in the most literal sense, we would probably wind up thinking that all NASCAR drivers are fools because I don't know if you guys know NASCAR up here, but they always drive to the left. But intuitively, we know that this is an improper way to read this verse. It's not telling us that this organ inside our chest that pumps blood determines who is wise and who is foolish based on who likes to walk on the left side and who likes to walk on the right side. We recognize instead that this verse is telling us that we can distinguish wisdom and folly. And it's the heart or the spirit within a person that ultimately determines that. There's a certain proverbial quality to this verse where the meaning of it is rightly understood in this non-literal sense. In fact, I would say that the proverbial tone adds meaning that just a face value reading cannot give. So if we want to grasp the deeper meaning of the text, then we have to see the underlying purpose of the text. We must read the Bible primarily in a way that answers the why question as opposed to the how question. Now, this doesn't mean that nothing in the Bible is not to be read literally. In fact, much of it should be. But the point is, we have to pay attention to the genre and the purpose of the passage, just like we read any other book if we want to get the full meaning. So keeping this in mind, we'll start looking at our second point, and we'll address some of these objections. We have to ask ourselves this. What does the Bible say about the age of the earth, evolution, and miracles? Those are the three hot topics today facing the faith. Where does Genesis 1 fit into all of this? It may seem that we've encountered a dilemma even in the first chapter of the Bible. It may seem that everything we've just said about how to read the Bible is completely irrelevant to the issue of science and faith. But if we look at Genesis 1, the one thing that we can say for certain about this chapter is that God created the world. How can we not take this literally? A little bit ago, we said the Apostles' Creed together, and it begins like this. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. So an essential aspect of Christianity is acknowledging that God is the creator of all things and that he created everything from nothing. If we believe this is true, then don't we have to believe in the strictest, most literal reading of Genesis 1? If we do that, how are we to make sense of the murky waters of science and its relationship to Genesis 1. Again, when we look at Genesis 1, one point is made absolutely clear, and that's God created. In ordinary language that even our kids can understand, Genesis 1 tells us that God created. 
With God as the creator and ruler of the universe, Genesis 1 begins by telling us in these four simple words, in the beginning, God. What do these four words mean together? They tell us that before anything was, God was. This is essentially what God tells Moses in the burning bush of Exodus 3.14, where it says, And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This means that he is the one who existed before the world and is the one who created the world. This much is clear. That much is easy to get. But what about how God created? If we look at the general pattern of Genesis 1, we see that seven times Scripture tells us, and God said. And that's always followed by an act of creation. So from merely speaking, God creates. God's speech is creative, and that's the way that he chose to create. As the creator of all things, he needed nothing but himself and his word to bring about the world. And while creating by speaking, God does so in six days, and he rested on the seventh. Now don't hear me wrong. The position of six literal 24-hour days of creation is viable and very compelling for a Christian to believe. But it's not the only option we have. In fact, it's the most widely accepted option in the history of the church. But Christian thinkers through the ages, even as early as the 4th century with Athanasius and the 5th century with Augustine, they've seen other viable and acceptable positions on Genesis 1. As we said, the Bible isn't a scientific textbook trying to give us every last detail about creation. But nonetheless, Genesis 1 is historical. It actually happened. And it shows us that God created and tells us how he created by his word. Now the objection here that I'm sure some of you are beginning to think is this. Science tells us the earth is billions of years old. And life took millions of years to evolve to what we see today. The Bible just says that, there, that everything was created in a matter of days Something's wrong there. At first, this objection is very substantial because the Bible does say six days of creation. But we've seen that we can't always read things in the, at face value in order to best understand them. If we were to read Genesis 1 very carefully, what would we see? And would this help us in this problem? We see on the first day God created the heavens, the earth, and light. On the second day, God divides the waters to form the sky. On the third day, God creates the dry land, seas, and vegetation. And after God creates on each of these days, the phrase, and there was evening and there was morning, always follows. But notice what is said is made on the fourth day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let, them be the, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. What do we see here? 
we see that it isn't until the fourth day that God created our sun and our moon, the greater and lesser light. The question is then, how do we understand the first three days of creation? How do we measure that time if our timekeepers themselves had not yet been made until the fourth day? If we were to read this at the most literal face value reading, we encounter a problem. Genesis shows us that God did create our timekeepers and is the author of time. But Genesis also shows us that the first three days of creation are without earthly time. Time certainly passed. But the time before day four can only really be called God's time. And we don't know how long that could have been. 2 Peter 3.8 gives us a metaphor to help us begin to understand this. When it says, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So perhaps the time before the creation of the sun and moon gives us the freedom to understand and accept the teachings of science that the earth might be a billion years old because the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how old the earth is. If we see that Genesis 1 is telling us God created, but it's not telling us every last detail about creation, then we're starting to get the point. Earlier, we mentioned the Ken Ham and Bill Nye debate of last month. And the issue in the debate boiled down to this question. How old is the earth? But I think the question really meant this. Christianity teaches a young earth, and science teaches an old earth. So it's either foolish to be a Christian in light of science, or it's admirable to believe in spite of science. Ham, a Christian, says the Bible teaches a young earth just thousands of years old. So his project is to show that mainstream science is wrong, and that the earth really is young if we were just doing science the right way. But what Bill Nye is saying is that the earth is old, and he points to evidence that it seems like most scientists believe. Now, the two argued for over two hours on the age of the earth, its history, the fossil record, biology, chemistry, and more science than I ever knew existed. So while these things are good to consider, I would argue that the debate was presenting the wrong problem, and it's asking the wrong question. Is knowing the age of the earth actually getting to the point? If I were to tell you everything I knew about the Eagles offense under Chip Kelly and the great season they had this past year, but you wanted to know how the Phillies were going to do this season under the new manager, have I really told you anything helpful? I may be able to give you every single stat from this past Eagles season, but it certainly doesn't help you when you're trying to understand whether you should buy Phillies tickets this year. In much the same way, the Bible doesn't tell us everything we would like to know about how old the earth is, but that's not what the Bible's trying to do. What it's really doing and what we should concern ourselves with is this, belief. The fundamental difference between Ken Ham and Bill Nye isn't really how old they think the earth is. As far as that's concerned, the age of the earth matters very little in our salvation. But I say, if you can't be a Christian because you think Christians believe against the evidence, just know that we don't. God has given us a way to understand science in a biblical manner. So if science isn't the issue, then what is? The issue, ultimately, is unbelief. The non-Christian views science and its findings apart from God, while the, while the Christian views science and its findings through God. 
The non-Christian elevates science to the level of God, eliminating his need for God. But at the end of the day, the Bible's made itself clear that all we Christians need to cling to is that God created and that he is ruling over and caring for his creation. So Christians can do science, and we can take what science says as long as we interpret it through God's word. So we've talked about the age of the earth, but what about evolution? That seems to be a hot topic today. Does the Bible have anything to say about that? Before we're able to answer this question, though, it may be helpful just to put a definition out there. The typical definition of evolution sounds something like this. The current species that exists now are the result of purely natural processes where all species developed from a common ancestor, a single source, over millions of years. I'll say it again because I know it's wordy. The current species that exist now are the result of natural processes where all species developed from a common ancestor or just a single source over millions of years. So this conception of evolution emphasizes the survival of the fittest, random mutations, the development of all creatures from one single source, and it has no room for God. But when we look at Genesis 1 again, we see that one thing is made absolutely clear. God created. Over the span of six days, however you feel led to interpret that, he created the world and everything in it. But what evolutionary theory is telling us is that God did not create everything. But the reason everything is as it is now, the reason we see all of these different animals, is because of random natural processes. God isn't working in this system. The system has no purpose. And the system has no morality if it has no purpose. If everything is the product of purely random and natural processes divorced, from the guiding hand of God, then the problem of meaning and morality arises. How can we really have any moral standards if the whole reason that any of us are here today is by chance and by the brutality associated with survival of the fittest? If we think about it, we see that morality can only exist in personal people. But morality only exists in people because only people are personal. People are personal because they are made by the personal God. If all we are is the result of impersonal and random chance, then we have no right to object to murder, adultery, theft, or anything else that we might think is evil. So evolution as a worldview is untenable and unacceptable because it cannot fully or even begin to adequately explain morality or our purpose. But as Christians, we shouldn't be quick to dismiss all of evolution, as perhaps even it can reveal something of the goodness and glory of God. Adaptations within species, otherwise known as microevolution, show very much that God is providing for and caring for his creation. When Charles Darwin, the father of evolutionary theory, went to the Galapagos Islands, he noticed one thing. He noticed that the finches, the birds on the different islands, were very, very similar, but there were just slight differences depending on which island he was on. He noticed that some had longer beaks, that some were different colors, and that some were just bigger. And he made the observation that this was to help them survive. 
So if this is the case, then perhaps we can see God's guiding hand, showing his love and his care and his affection for all that he has created. Evolution understood in this way doesn't undermine what Scripture teaches, but in fact it reveals how great, wise, and powerful our God really is. So while the issue of evolution is a hot topic, perhaps the biggest one is the existence of miracles. If science is true, then the objection says that miracles cannot happen because they break the natural, unchangeable laws of physics, chemistry, biology, or any other science. Listen to the greatest modern skeptic, David Hume, on this. He says, a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature. And as a firm and unalterable experience has established these laws, the proof against a miracle, from the very nature of the fact, is as entire as any argument from experience as can possibly be imagined. I know that's wordy and complicated, but what he's essentially saying is this. We've observed, we've calculated, we've analyzed the data. We've come to firm conclusions about how things work each and every time. A miracle would break these observations. They would break these laws. So therefore, a miracle cannot exist. I have to confess, it seems like Hume, to a large extent, is right. I've never seen a man walk on water. I've never tasted wine that was water before. I've never had a friend rise from the dead. But the difference between Hume and I is this. I believe that God exists and that his word in the Bible is true. So I believe a man walked on water. I believe water became wine. And I believe that Jesus rose from the grave. Hume doesn't believe in God from the outset. So miracles, these types of things, can't fit into his worldview. And since they can't fit into his worldview, he says they can't possibly exist. But notice the definition of a miracle he gave. He defined it as a violation of the laws of nature. That's a perfectly acceptable definition, and many people accept it. But I would argue that it's inadequate. It doesn't do full justice to the God who created all things and created nature itself. But if we just accept his definition for argument's sake, we can still see that it says nothing that disproves the existence of miracles. Simply because Hume has never experienced a miracle, such as a man walking on water, doesn't mean that that never happened in any time or at any place in history. If the argument against miracles is just an argument from ordinary experience, then we have to agree with Hume. Because miracles, by definition, are extraordinary. Miracles aren't normal. They're abnormal. Miracles don't happen every day to day. And they certainly didn't happen every day in the Bible. So instead of Hume's definition of a violation of the laws of nature for miracles, I would suggest this one. God doing something extraordinary so that his people may believe. Again, I think miracles rightly understood go down to this definition. Miracles are God doing something extraordinary so that his people may believe. We can get a better understanding of this when we see how miracles occur in the Bible. If we only limit our study to the book of John, we see that in this book, Jesus performs seven miracles. 
But these aren't arbitrary displays of Jesus' power. No, Jesus isn't walking around in the first century like that junior high kid we all knew who learned a card trick and had to show it to everyone just to be cool. No, Jesus' miracles serve a higher purpose. Listen to what John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31 tell us. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Did you catch that? Jesus performed his miracles, and John wrote them down under the guidance of the Holy Spirit so that we could believe and we could have life. This is a radically different understanding of miracles than David Hume's, who said that they're just some impersonal violation of the laws of nature. To Hume, miracles are simply impossible accidents. But Jesus has a purpose for his miracles. That those who saw them firsthand and those of us who read about them today may believe. Now we've just considered a lot. But what's left? Is it simply enough for us to acknowledge that God created all things and that he's now ruling over them? While this is true, it's only part of the truth. The Bible, which is the account of God's plan of redemption of his people through Jesus, tells us that God created and that his creation was good. He even tells us that he created man very good. But something went wrong in creation. Sin entered in. Listen to Romans 1, 21 to 23. For although they, man, knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So, instead of us properly obeying and worshiping the God that created us, we've gone our own way into sin. Without sounding too simplistic, the problems of the world, and indeed the problems of science, can be reduced to this one problem, sin. But the question is, how has sin affected us? And how has it affected science? As Christians, we know that sin has alienated us from God, but the blood of Christ has redeemed us. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What is this telling us about sin and science? It's saying that those who do not have faith can't comprehend spiritual things. They can't comprehend God. They can't see how he fits in. If those who do not have the Spirit are not in fellowship with God, and their hearts are darkened as Romans has just told us, then this has terrible, terrible implications for science. Science divorced from faith isn't sufficient to answer the questions of morality and purpose. That's why doctors used to have to say the Hippocratic Oath, which is a non-scientific vow to do medicine for the good of their patients. That tells us that science is powerful. 
But if it's separated from faith, it can be dehumanizing and destructive. The same science that's now giving us new technology, bringing resources to impoverished areas, and saving so many lives is also the same science that we use in warfare to kill so many people. The same physics that created radiation cancer treatments, saving so many lives, is the same physics that created nuclear weapons that threaten the destruction of the planet at any moment. The same chemistry that made chemotherapy treatments, again, saving so many lives, is the same chemistry that was used to make poison gases to kill thousands of people in a war like Vietnam. The same airplane that can take us anywhere in the world in just a matter of hours is the same airplane that was used on September 11, 2001 to hit the World Trade Center. What do these examples show us? They show us that science is indeed very powerful, but it's nothing more than an instrument in the hands of man to be used for good or for evil. This should cause us to reflect on the power of science, of science that God has given it. But it should also cause us to reflect on how our sin has so perverted this good blessing that God has given us. It seems like we're in a place of despair, that there's no answer. But if we look at our third point, we see that it's good news. Jesus has redeemed us. But even in redeeming our souls, he has redeemed everything, and he has redeemed science. Listen to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Christ came to dwell among us to take away our sin, but also to take away the effects of our sin. When he returns, he'll bring about the completion of all things to his glory, and he'll recreate everything anew. But until then, we can do science for the glory of God and for our good because Christ has even reconciled it to himself. He holds all things together. So we know our science is true. And if we do it properly, we do it for our good and for his glory. It's only when we fail to believe in him as the creator of science, as our savior, and as the redeemer of science, that everything goes wrong. So, what have we looked at and what have we discussed? We first saw how we should read the Bible. We focused that and applied that on Genesis 1. And here we found that the supposed tension, the supposed animosity between Christianity and science is only apparent. And that it fades away if we read the Bible as it's meant to be read. 
It's God's word to his people so that they might know him and be saved. In this, we saw that Christians aren't bound to believe only one scientific theory about creation or anything else, but that God has given us the liberty to decide as long as we interpret it and exalt him as creator, redeemer, and king of creation. Second, we looked at these three major objections to Christianity, the age of the earth, evolution, and miracles. Again, we saw that there's some freedom in Christianity to examine the findings of science as long as we interpret them through God's word. Most of all here, we saw that miracles are not arbitrary violations of natural law. No, they're personal displays of the personal God's power over his creation so that we can believe. Miracles occur, to put it concisely, so that God's people and all the world might know him. And finally, we saw that Christ has redeemed us and all things to himself. By taking on human flesh, God himself meets us in our sin in order that he can save us. So Christians, we should rejoice at the wisdom of God who created and gave us the Bible, knew these objections would arise, but has fully answered them. Non-Christians, you should hear of the marvelous creation of the God who transcends time and space, is above his creation, but yet is personal. We know that only personal, rational beings can speak. For example, trees don't speak to us. Fish can't talk. And even the scientific laws that we hold so dear don't tell us anything. They can't speak to us. So we have to consider the fact that the personal God spoke us into existence. But not only is God personal towards his creation in general, but he is personal towards his greatest creation, man. In Genesis 1.28, we see that God blesses Adam and Eve, the first people, telling them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This verse has come to be known as the cultural mandate because God is essentially telling us this. He's saying, work, live, and thrive in my creation. Subdue what I've made and figure out why I've made things the way they are. In other words, it's telling us this. Do science. We should see his goodness in the lab. We should measure his immeasurable faithfulness to us in the constancy of natural law, and that should cause us to adore him as the Lord. But now as we close, I do need to make one final point and plea. We read 1 Corinthians 2.14 earlier, but let's see how it fits into the context of its own passage. Verses 12 to 16 say, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? 
but we have the mind of Christ. If you're not a Christian and you're here, I urge you to reckon with this passage. Only by the grace of God can we know God, because only those who have been given the mind of Christ can know God. You may ask, what blocks this knowledge of God? And just one word, sin. We've seen how science and Christianity are compatible and that indeed Christianity gives science its purpose. So there's no scientific reason to reject Christianity, but for the only reason that anyone ever does. Sin. At some point or another, we've all exchanged the truth about God for a lie. But the lie looks different for each of us. If science is your God, I urge you to think about what that means for how you should live your life. Think about what that worldview actually tells you if there's no personal creator redeeming God. And I urge you to see how Christianity can and has answered your questions, your objections, but I most of all urge you to see how you can be reconciled to God through Christ. It's only then that you can have a proper God-honoring understanding of the world and therefore science. But Christians, we need to repent of our own sinful mindsets and of our own unbelief. We have too long neglected science or we've done bad science simply because we're scared. But this fear is childish because the one who's made all things is the one that has indeed told us to do science. Like a child, we're afraid even though we know everything will be all right. So Christians, we need to repent. We need to join with the man in Mark 9 who's brought his son to be healed by Jesus. We need to join him and say, I believe. Help my unbelief. If we do this, we honor God. We exalt him for who he is, the creator of all things. And we're able to worship him in everything we do, even in the lab, even in science. Let's pray.